Welcome to Disability Inc. I'm Colin Montgomery, Senior Family Educator at Include NYC. Today, I have the great privilege of speaking with Donna Kennedy about the history and evolution of private special education schools in New York. Donna has been working in the field of special education for over 30 years and the past 28 years at the Gillen Brewer School. Since 2003, she's been head of school at Gillen Brewer, which is a private special education school in Manhattan that serves a diverse student body. Gillen Brewer's comprehensive program balances social, emotional, and academic education. Welcome, Donna. Hi, Colin. Nice to be with you today. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. You've been actively involved in the private special education system for decades, and we're so delighted to have you as our expert to help us better understand the history of private special education schools in New York, like Gillen Brewer. There are so many fascinating questions about how these schools differ from public schools and their special education programming, how these schools came to be, and how they're faring today. I can't wait to get into all of this. But let's first define what these schools are. They're publicly funded private special education schools that came to be in 1976 when the state granted contracts to private schools in order to educate the small but important handful of public school students whose needs could not be met in the public system. Once under contract, the schools became publicly funded as part of the continuum or range of special education programs that the public school system provides to meet the special education requirements of the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Okay, we've set the stage, Donna. Uh, we'd love for you to share how things look on the ground in private special education schools, how they've changed, and what impacts the changes to private special education schools has had on students with disabilities and their families. So to, to get that conversation started, can you share in more detail why private special education schools are necessary for students and, and how they're different from public schools offering special education services? Sure. Um, you know, uh, I'll speak a lot from, you know, being that I've had three decades in this field, I'll, I'll frame a lot of my answers from my experience of being at Gillen Brewer um, mm -hmm. and working with families now where, you know, the preschoolers that I had when I started in this program are now into adulthood, right? And so being in touch with those families and um, really seeing how the landscape has changed dramatically in terms of what's available for families and, and still what is not. Right. And mm. and it continues to be a really challenging landscape for families to navigate. Um, certainly, you always uh, have a, a group of parents who are more private school minded parents that don't intend mm -hmm. to send their children to, to, to be in public school. But then you have a larger number of families who depend on the public uh, school system to educate their children. And when they learn that they have a child with special needs, they're looking to that public school system to um, best support their student, you know, their children. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think that, you know, they first come on the scene of what it's like to enter into a system um, to educate their newly diagnosed autistic child at the age of 2.8 coming into a public bureaucracy and with recommendations of getting as many services as possible as early as possible. And that is when they are introduced to this behemoth of a bureaucracy of trying to navigate getting services um, for their child through a public model. Yeah, and so true. It's, it's, you know, fortunately today, there are so many more 
groups such as um, include NYC that that can help parents navigate that. But many families don't know what their options are, and so um, they go into these um, you know experiences, learning that their child is failing year after year after year. Um, until someone takes the time to help define why they're failing um, mm -hmm. or what options there are in public school available to them. And then they start that road down kind of what are the options for public schools. So that's where they learn where they could um, either have some individual support or an aid or a see it um, into the classroom. Now there's, you know, there's collaborative team teaching models, which didn't exist in 1992 when I was, um, mm. you know, a teacher st starting out as a teacher. Um, there are nest programs that didn't exist in 1992 when I started as a teacher. So the those are for students with autism. For students with autism and and a, a defined group of students with autism, right? So yes. it's not just a, a model for any child who has autism, and that has to be defined for parents and understanding what that means. Yeah. So you know, through the years, there I think the public school system has tried to really meet the needs of as many special needs students as they can. But then mm -hmm. there is a, a large group of students for whom those public, those public models, um, those public school models just don't work, right? It's, it's because you're, you're also trying to meet the needs of these students in these large schools, right? Large lunchrooms, large playgrounds. And sometimes that size, that level of, um, you know, space that the, the immense kind of space that these public schools exist in are just not tolerable for a lot of children's for a lot of children. And it is it doesn't create the kind of in learning and the kind of learning environment that they need. And so um, as time has kind of rolled on, um, you know, the the decision where children um, where they are not able to provide a free appropriate public education in the public school system that led to decision making that would allow students to be placed in other kinds of schools um, that would be more defined according to the needs of the students. And that's where um, a long winded answer to how our schools kind of came to, you know, the state funded schools came to be. Um, that is where it was determined that students would be able to be placed in other settings other than a public school um, because the public school couldn't meet the free appropriate public educational standard that was um, designed um, when, when the Individualized uh, Dis Disabilities Education Act came out um, on the scene. And so state funded schools um, kind of came into operation to help meet the needs of these students that um, whose needs couldn't be met in the public school system. And so that's where Gillen Brewer came into um, educating students is trying to meet the needs um, and, and fill the niche um, where the public schools couldn't. Um, and as a, as a state funded school, you are an independently run school, but you are mm -hmm. state funded in that you mm -hmm. are getting funds through the state um, that are approved for your children to, to attend your program. That's all super helpful information. Um, you're just thinking of some of those key terms you use, like just the fact that 
public school options in New York City truly are a behemoth, you know, that there's so many options, many of which are work well for many students, but that, you know, there can be challenges with the nature of the programming or the size of, of, of the school or um, the classroom programs. Yeah, it can really pose challenges. And um, it's so good to know that there are these programs available, you can each programs for students who, who truly need them. Um, just co connecting it to a family who's moving through the process of considering a, a private special education school, you know, one that's funded through the state. Um, how much advocacy is needed to obtain a placement, Donna, for, for the typical family? Or maybe there isn't a typical family. Yeah, I don't think there's a typical family. I think that if you are fortunate to come across a, um, a group of educators through the, you know, Committee on Special Education, the CSE um, or CPSE, the, the Committee on Preschool Special Education, these are the systems that parents will um, go through in order to get the services or the placement, um, a specialized placement, either in a public school or um, at that meeting, it would be determined if there is not a public school option, then they would be then um, sent over to a placement office, which would help them then find a state funded school. Um, sometimes that works for families where there is a group of people in that CSE meeting who are educated enough to know about mm -hmm. the parents' options, and many times they are not. Mm -hmm. And so the parent is just leaving the meeting saying, we don't have, um, we don't exactly have what your child needs, but the closest we have is this particular model. Right, and it's not even what is recommended in their individualized education plan, right? Their IEP, which is a legal document that, that, mm -hmm. that allows the parent to have their child placed in what would be deemed as an appropriate uh, public school model, right? So, right, the, the parent is also looking, right? The Board of Education also looks at that document, not as a placement, but of, uh, as a set of services. Right, and these yep. services exist in a place, right? So the public school might be able to offer some parts of those services, but then you might have to go out and get other services, related services somewhere else, right? And that's where parents get very, very confused, right? Because they are offered a placement that is not what is recommended, but it's the only thing in that district that is close enough to what is being offered and a parent that yeah. doesn't know they have options, right, ends up saying, okay, well, if that's all you can offer me, I guess that's what I have to take, right? So when a child comes to Gill and Brewer out of a public school, often um, they have been placed in a setting that was completely inappropriate, right, for mm -hmm. them, that, that it was recommended they'd be in a class of you know, eight to one, you know, eight to one to one. And that doesn't exist in that school. And so they put them in a 12 to one to two, or they put them in an ICT program that has 24 kids in it, but they kind of, um, the parent kind of, you know, understands it that, but wait a minute, there's going to be a special ed teacher and there's only, you know, 10 other special ed kids in the room. So I thought my child would be in a small a smaller setting. Well, no, they're actually in a room with 24 children and that special educator is in there. However, mm. not during lunch, not on the playground. They might be pulled for sets, you know, for, for special ed teaching in other classrooms. And so the parent starts to learn too late 
that their child is now in an environment and their child is struggling tremendously and the public school is kind of saying, well, this is the best we can do. Yeah, yeah. No, um, and just hearing you kind of mentioning some of those class settings, you know, the eight to one to one, right? We're talking about eight, eight students, a teacher, then a paraprofessional assigned to the class, 12 to one to one, 12 students, right? These are, these are potential um, special education program recommendations that are part of that continuum, right? That range of, of programs and services that uh, school districts are required to offer. And that happens to be the range of services in, in New York City sets us uh, along that range of programs as well. It's um, small group instruction generally, or it could be um, a special ed teacher working in a general education class working with students. So just, just define those terms for, for any listeners for whom those may be new terms. Uh, but that all comes back to that idea you mentioned before about free and appropriate public education, right? Like what is truly necessary for the student to, to make progress? And they may not be able to find it in a school, as you mentioned, right? The school could say, this is the best that we can offer. Um, so certainly understand how families um, may not understand that there are these uh, options outside of the public school system um, and that families may be coming at this a, a little bit later and they, they realize, oh, there's, there's this program that so much better meets the needs of my student uh, outside of, you know, the smaller class program I was in in my Department of Ed school. So that's all very, very helpful to hear. Yeah, so I'm pivoting back over to, to these private schools, Donna. Um, just thinking about the nature of them, you know, they're they're funded and approved uh, by, by the state. So what goes behind a school becoming funded and approved? What kind of dictates that status? So when, uh, when Gillen Brewer decided to um, open, Mm -hmm. um, the founders at the time, Laura Belisic and Laura DuBose, they had to apply to the state. So you apply to the state um, in identifying who you're going to serve. Um, and, and at that time, there were different kinds of categories that children were placed into by these committee on special education, right? So um, preschool right now in, in the committee on preschool special education, it's preschooler with a disability. Back in 1992, it wasn't just an umbrella term. You had kids mm -hmm. divided into different categories. That's where you had pervasive developmental delay and you had right lots of different categories. And so mm -hmm. the DSM, what was the DSM-3, I think at the time, which is the diagnostic manual that, that kind of categorizes kids into their diagnostic places, they kind of use those diagnoses as a way to kind of identify what category will those kids um, be defined in when they go into the public school system, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think now there's 11 of them, um, you know, that a child is either, you know, speech impaired or they have a learning disability, right? So they have those different categories. But at the time in 1992, they didn't have, and they didn't have the same categories. So as a school, you had to try to define who are the kids that you're going to serve. And so when you apply to the state, you say, okay, we're going to be this big of a school, we're going to serve this many children, and we're going to serve children in these particular categories, right? And you you put that application in, you have to define what curriculum you're going to use. Um, you know, back then, there wasn't the special ed itinerant teachers 
just coming on the scene in 1992 was- Those are those CIA you spoke about the, Right, the CIA I talked about, you know, applied behavior analysis, ABA, BCBA people, that really mm -hmm. wasn't something going on in New York City, right? And so we had to define ourselves, you know, as a preschool and a school age program that was going to serve kids with learning disabilities, speech impaired, no, not even learning disabilities at that time. We were just speech impaired and, um, and I think PDD, you know, pervasive developmental delay, which now which is under the umbrella of autism, yeah, right? Yeah. But it, they don't now diagnose kids with PDD anymore. It's diagnosed hmm. under the uh, umbrella of autism. And so you kind of had to decide which niche were you going to fill that the public schools couldn't fill. Um, mm -hmm. And then you wait for the state to come back and approve you. And at that time, they're going to give you a rate per student that you're going to serve that is based on what is called the regional weighted average. Mm, okay. As you can imagine, running a city in the school and the expense of running a school, a, a city school is very different than running um, a school in a very small town in upstate New York. Sure, right? sure. But, can only but, imagine. Right. So, but the rate is regional weighted, right? And so you're kind of grouped in with a lot of other schools and they kind of give you an average and you have to just take what that assigned rate is, um, which from the beginning, you know, did not cover the cost of what it really costs to educate the kids mm. yeah. uh, that you are serving. And so just straight out of the gate, you're, you're operating at a deficit, but you're serving the schools that the public, you're, you're serving the kids that the public schools can't serve and they have agreed that they can't serve them to allow them to come to your school. Exactly. Okay. Um, uh, no, that, that's that's really helpful to hear just that kind of the, the case study of Gillen Brewer and how you went to that process of approval um, when it comes to deciding disability classifications or categories to create that kind of niche model that's responsive to provide that appropriate education for students. And, you know, those curriculum decisions and uh, and funding decisions we're, we're, we're certainly going to keep exploring. Um, and it, it's a nice segue to, to start thinking about the fact that the private special education schools in New York City and across the state um, are a mix of these funded schools that we've been talking about up until now largely, but also non-funded schools. And the schools that don't accept funding in New York are known as non-approved private schools. So I'd love to discuss those for a few moments. Uh, how are these non-approved private special education schools uh, different from the funded and approved schools in status and, and in their history, Donna? Sure, so um, we, we largely um, are the, you know, historically we have been a state funded school um, mm -hmm. up until just a couple years ago where we changed our status and we discontinued our contract mm -hmm. with the city um, and we turned fully private, which means mm -hmm. that um, we no longer receive any kind of funding, um, public funding at all that our, our mm. students all pay, our families all pay um, tuition or we have a reduced kind of uh, a way of, of helping families get here. Um, but we discontinued um, the uh, acceptance of these public funds um, because we were having to raise so much money um, to operate our school and we had the, um, there's a tremendous amount of 
work and reporting that you have to do when you are a state funded school. You have to um, abide by all of the city and state requirements and the city and the state require different things. So even your database can't be one database because the way you need to report things is very different. Um, and every couple of years they decide they're gonna try something new um, to have their finger more on the pulse of what's happening out there with the state funded schools and the schools that are not under the public school umbrella. And so there's more bureaucracy put on you, right? There's more oversight that they're trying to put in and they're not quite sure how to do it. So you're constantly in this state of being responsible um, to to report out whatever they tell you, you have to report out, but they're not quite sure what they're gonna ask you to report out. And Donna, um, um, yeah. just 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 thinking about they, is that the state education department or so it's both. else? So you okay. are, right, so as a state funded school, you have to sign a contract with the city, but mm -hmm. you have to be approved by the state. Oh, okay, so two, the kind of two levels there. Right, so you, your contract is with the city. So if the public mm -hmm. schools, close, you close. If if the public schools stay open, you stay open. If the public schools close, but you want to stay open, buses aren't running. So mm -hmm. right, everything revolves around um, kind of how the public schools are operating, their calendar, what you're required. Um, but you have a little more flexibility in how you want to run your program based on the curriculum that, that the state has approved, right? So this is where kind of substantial equivalency um, that a lot of schools are talking about right now. The idea was that you can be separate, but you have to be equivalent, substantially equivalent to what the public schools offer, right? Okay. And so that's where the state is kind of saying, okay, we approve your curriculum. We approve that you're a viable institution, but the city is saying, okay, that may be, but you have to follow all of our rules. Um, mm -hmm. And as a very small school with a very small administration, with a very small budget, with parents who can't do fundraising, right? It makes it really, really challenging to operate um, and support the families the way you need to on a shoestring budget um, with a rate that is not growing or we saw six years of freezes in our rate um, when it was determined that they just didn't have the money. So that's that goes back to that regional weighted average for, for yes. the approved schools. You're talking about the case of the approved schools. I'm talking about the, the case of the approved schools. So yeah. you know, we had made a decision when we were up to having to raise over $2 million a year to operate a very small school of 86 children that mm. we just could not sustain this anymore. Um, right. and, and we did not see any movement in the state that was telling us after repeatedly going back to them to ask them to, um, you know, increase our rate. Um, there, there was no kind of response um, to the many schools who were struggling to, to help us. And in fact, preschool was the worst. We had freezes of up to six years, no cost of living increases, nothing. Hmm. Um, and so we were averaging, you know, twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars a year per child deficit um, that we were not getting from the state that we were having to fundraise for, um, and that wow. really finally made the decision that, um, you know, that that we were not going to be able to sustain it. And we are, we are an outlier 
um, mm. in, in that we we have been so fortunate to do that kind of fundraising um, to be able to sustain our model. Many, many, many schools have closed not being able to do that. Yeah, and that, that's a big part of why we wanted to, to speak with you. You know, if you have this deep wealth of experience, you know, working in, in the system and, and there's been this marked shift uh, among the private special education schools in terms of their status. There's fewer approved schools that have kept their contracts um, with the state and the city to, to fund the school's tuition and, and many other schools have closed just as you noted. So uh, I imagine some of what you shared with Gill and Brewer in terms of the funding challenges, the challenges of getting uh, the reimbursement through that regional weighted average um, extends to, to those other schools as well. Uh, but are there other challenges that, that schools have faced that have kind of accounted for the shift? I think it's, you know, that's that's mainly it, right? I mean, okay. it's, it's the money. I think that um, also you start to, you know, we have strong missions in our schools. Like yeah. we got into this to serve families who couldn't be served in public school. Like we we really didn't go into it as an independent school to serve families who would otherwise always have been in independent schools. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in, in looking at how um, unsupported, you know, these schools have been along the way, uh, both from a city perspective of, of kind of taking a position that we serve wealthy families um, and a state position of saying we can't afford to give you more money, right? The parents are kind of caught in the crossfire. Um, and we know our families. We know that we're not serving, you know, 50% of my families, you know, qualify for, you know, tuition assistance. And, you know, we don't do, we don't have a scholarship model, but if we did, they would all fall into that category. And so um, there's a kind of myth that all of those of us who are independent special education schools that, you know, th that when we left our state funded um, status that, that we desire to serve only the wealthiest sector of New York City, that is very much not the case. Um, we're very fortunate that we're able to have a very diverse socioeconomic, um, you know, community so that those who can give um, you know, do, and that helps support those who can't. Um, mm -hmm. And it allows us to serve, uh, you know, a good number of students who otherwise wouldn't have access to a private special, you know, special education, um, you know, if we didn't have that kind of support. And so, um, you know, it just, when, when you're not properly supported financially, institutions have to do what they can to try to keep alive, right? And so yeah. you veer off from your mission, um, you know, not that you want to do it, but you you want to continue to serve your population and, and serve them well and, and serve, you know, um, a diverse group of students. And, you know, when you don't have the resources to, um, to do that, you know, then schools are forced to, you know, do fundraising in, in you know, in at a level that we were never designed, um, you know, to do. And, yeah. um, and you know, it, it's, it's really, we've tried very, very hard. Um, and I think that we have successfully stayed true to our mission. Um, but that's because I have a stellar, you know, board who has made fundraising their priority um, and they're largely not families in the school. And so we've been able to find a lot of strong resources to support our families um, 
and not put the burden of that on our parent body. Um, mm. But again, that's very unique. And, and I recognize that, right? Many schools don't have the ability to do that. Um, so we're fortunate in that way. Okay. Yeah. So I'm hearing just there's, there's more kind of operating flexibility now that you're in this non-approved status at Gillen Brewer. That's, that's helped you, you know, do the work, carry out the mission better uh, to the benefit of students and families. Absolutely. And, you know, I get to design the class sizes that meet the needs of the students. If mm. I think a student fits better in this particular class size, then we can make that recommendation and put that child in that class size. And so, oh, interesting. you know, the, the needs of the student drive the program, not the other mm. way around. Okay. And, you know, so, so that's the design of an independent model is we independently can do what we feel is in the best interest of our community and our, and our students. And it's not driven right by um, a bureaucracy right, of saying, well, this is the best we can do. No, we're, okay. we're, we're not going to accept children who this would not be the right model for them. Um, and it's also, you know, true that, you know, we're, we're a school that we would not accept a child as much because we think that they could do well in a public school. And that would be a recommendation for us to not take a child at Gillen Brewer, um, mm. as much as a child who needs more support than what we could offer. Um, we're not just going to take a family because they can pay the tuition if it's not a if it's not the right placement. Um, you know, we feel very strongly that, you know, true to our mission that we are here to provide an education for those students who otherwise could not find an appropriate placement in public school. Um, and we continue to do that and and we will continue to you know send parents into the public schools if we feel, they could, their child can do that and their child can mm. handle that. And we, and we think they're in a school district that they do have a model um, that their child could, could do well in. Um, so that's a little bit different than some of maybe other special ed schools mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. might have, but you know, we serve a population of students that are more involved than having maybe mild learning disabilities. Our students really have more significant needs than that. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's all. Very, very interesting. There, there's so much to consider there with this shift in status and the challenges you face at Gillen Brewer. It's to me, I, I, you know, as a former special education teacher and uh, during my time at Include, this, this is all a history that's kind of new to me. You know, it very much seems like a, an under the radar history of special education in New York that's really helpful to, to know, to really understand the full sense of programs and services that are necessary for students with, with IEPs, um, you know, throughout the state. Uh, and certainly in the city. Uh, but, you know, kind of connecting back to, to Gillen Brewer and you being at the center of these major shifts over the past 30 years, Donna, I, I was just wondering, you know, any reflections you have and working in special ed over the past three decades, you know, how has your work evolved over time? I think that, um, you know, we've been able to refine what we do with kids. You know, there's a lot mm -hmm. more um, data on what's effective and what's best practice for for uh, students. Uh, we don't prescribe to one model of, of learning. You know, we, um, I'm fortunate to have, you know, three decades of, of um, experience under my belt. And so, you know, I can draw from a lot of different um, experiences and, and educational models. You know, I, I don't believe in throwing the baby out with the bathwater as they say. So, mm -hmm. you know, I went through the whole you know, genre of whole, whole learning, whole reading, um, you know, and, and I don't, I don't prescribe to, 
you know, any one particular thing, but I love big books. And I think big books have a place um, in literature. And, you know, that is a genre of education that brought a lot of different ways of thinking about learning with children and literacy that I think can live very well today. Um, but we tend to kind of not learn from history and we try to reinvent um, education. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, I, I tell the staff all the time, you know, I feel like the grandmother who's saying in my day when I taught, you know, <laughs> um, but it's to illustrate that, you know, everything old is new again for a reason, right? Good practice is good practice. Mm -hmm. um, early childhood education remains to be um, centered around relationships, trust, social emotional learning, hands-on learning, um, mm -hmm. not rushing development too fast, right? Whether your, your child is in um, a neurotypical kind of environment or they're in a special needs kind of environment, um, that's all good for all children, right? And so I like to try to bring in what's normal um, because I think in special education, we tend to over pathologize things. And so parents very are true. getting very confused as to what's just a typical um, toddler preschool mm -hmm. kind of behavior or what's a part of their disability. Um, and, and, you know, I have the experience both as, a, as an educator for such a long time, a preschool educator and a parent to say, no, that's just, you know, that's just a child throwing a temper tantrum. Like that's not a yeah. behavioral issue, you know, under the diagnosis, um, you know, it, it, and that to me is helpful for parents because it normalizes being a parent of a child mm -hmm. um, as opposed to always being the parent of the special needs child. You know, and and that's the part that I think over time I have seen, um, I don't know, I, I, I feel that parents are so inundated with so much information and it's very, very confusing and they come into schools, you know, more read than the educators themselves because, you know, they have, you know, this wealth of information in front of them. And when, when your child is diagnosed with a disability, you can just go down the rabbit hole of, of Google um, and just come out just more confused than ever. And I think that's where we as special educators, our job is to help sort out some of those things and get parents on a track of saying, let's, let's work together and really kind of being, be in the moment and, and yeah. not get way too ahead of ourselves in terms of worrying about the future, because I can tell you with certainty, the future of special education is going to change. So what you think is there now, that is going to change, but yeah. you can help shape it. And, mm -hmm. and that's where I think pulling, you know, a, a, a central part of the Gillen Brewer mission is working with parents as partners. And even, you know, we're in the, the pandemic and when we had to switch to remote, the first thing we did was start surveying parents, you know, every week about what's working, what's not working, what can we do differently, what's your schedule at home, what kind of technology do you have at home, how many siblings are in the home, where is your child going to learn, yeah. right? We know that the environment, what I call is the fourth teacher, because we have three teachers in the classroom, and then you have the environment, and I think the environment <laughs> is huge, so you can't just lift the school model and just set it in the home and think that, you know, if a parent is just there to listen to you, 
that it's going to all work out. No, the home environment is a completely different environment. And the parent is not a special ed teacher. The parent is the parent, right? And so, you know, our model of working with parents in a partnership, you know, we've just taken this pandemic and we've taken the circumstance and said, okay, don't reinvent, you know, you know what works, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know how to work with families, you have different circumstances, different environment. So you have to study that first before you launch something out that no one's going to be able to maintain and sustain. And you've never been remote teachers before. So we have to acknowledge all of these things in front of us that are not known. And, you know, parents who are living with uncertainty every day about having a special needs child, right, they live in uncertainty. They depend on us to give some structure, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to the day. And I think, you know, this situation has thrown everything up in the air that we as special educators that have known, you know, know what works, know what works with children when they're with us. Now we have to go into the home and we have to try to guide these parents in an environment that's unknown to us. And, yeah. You know, and so it's put us in a very different kind of position and actually really good one, I think, for educators because we lose sight of what the realities are um, for our families in, um, you know, in living with the students mm -hmm. that we serve in school, right? Understanding mm -hmm. when the parent says they won't do that for me at home, we now know what that looks like. <laughs> um, and, you know, just being on a screen in front of that child doesn't mean that they're going to now do what they would do in school, right? That there's, that's not happening. And so yeah. um, there's been a window into each other's worlds that I think has been really, really important. Um, mm -hmm. That can deepen the partnership, you know. Like completely. And I think that, that that's what we as educators need to um, look at and learn. And, and I think that's the opportunity in front of us when we get mm -hmm. into these situations is rather than focusing on what's not working, focusing on how bad it is, you know, you, when we get into that place, it's not productive. But when mm -hmm. we get into the place to say, let's study this, let's learn about it, let's work together, let's figure it out together, let's problem solve, which again is another part of our program at Gillen Brewer. We have a very strong emphasis on problem solving. Um, when you get to that place, that partnership lends itself to, to doing really incredible things for the child, right? Because it's not adults looking at each other saying, you could do more, you could do more, you could do more, you could do more. We're saying, how do we work together to have an impact on this human being that yeah. we're responsible for, right? It's bigger than ourselves, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's more important than what the adults, you know, are, are dealing with. It's a, it's a little human being that we're here yeah. to help shape through a pandemic. They don't have a history of what it was like before. They, yeah. they don't, they haven't had 40 years of never wearing a mask. I mean, all of my kids are wearing masks. The staff never thought they'd be able to do it. I said, yeah. you, I always say you will be, if you set that, you know, if, if, if they, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we think kids can't do it, they absolutely will do that every time. But if you kind of leave yourself open to say, you know, maybe, so if they were to do it, how would we get them to do it? Right. And this mm -hmm. is, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I look at a lot of skills that, that kids learn and mask wearing, not being ever one of them on an IEP. Um, 
you know, you, you say, okay, but for them to be safe in school, they have to be able to wear it. Why is it that every single kid can wear it? Sensory kids, yeah. kids that have, you know, real issues around these things, you know, that, that I think sometimes if we looked at that skill and, you know, there would be a host of special educators that would say, well, that's not an appropriate skill for that child to learn because they have sensory issues. And I'm not saying that there aren't kids that, that don't have significant issues where mask wearing is problematic. I'm not saying that at all. Sure, I'm sure, just sure. saying that we went into this with this idea that a lot of our kids would not be able to do it. Yeah. Um, and they have proved every single person wrong, which is thrilling. I love that. I love when kids prove us wrong and, and supersede the expectations. I think yeah. that's exactly what, you know, um, we need to learn from that. Yeah, no, and Donna, that's, that's so, so helpful to just hear, you know, that kind of narrative of progress, you know, at Gillen Brewer in collaboration. I, I know COVID is the elephant in the room for any conversation with anyone at this point yeah. and any podcast you're listening to. <laughs> so I really appreciate you, you know, kind of detailing how it's been playing out and, and playing out well uh, overall. Um, but just kind of connecting back to, to Gillen Brewer, just, just so our listeners have a better sense of, of your mission and model and, and the students who attend your school. Do you, do you mind uh, spending a couple minutes talking about, um, you know, Gillen Brewer's history? Because you mentioned that you've had pre-K programs and also, um, you know, the model and, and the students you serve. Sure. So um, when we started in 1992, we had one preschool child in a rented church space on mm -hmm. 93rd and Park Avenue. Our two um, founders were special education teachers and um, a group of us, they asked, you know, a, a couple associate teachers to come over with them to, you know, kind of see their vision of, um, of starting a school with no building, no money, no nothing. <laughs> you want to mm -hmm. come? Sure. Wow. Yeah, let's go. Um, wow. And so the idea that they really, you know, they really um, wanted to create a model of a program that really had working with the parents in a partnership as the heart of the program, the family being the heart of the program, um, and which is why they named the school after their grandmothers, Maddie Gillen and Virginia Brewer, which is how we get our name, Gillen Brewer. Gotcha. Um, so family has been the heart of what we've done since day one, um, a central focus. And so we started with one preschool child um, preschool was the first uh, level that we started with and we added one preschool class and then the next year we added another preschool class um, the following year a kindergarten so we kind of built as the kids aged up we added another grade um, okay. at that time we were approved to serve kids preschool through uh, age eight so we just went to second grade so um, that was for we topped out at 48 kids um, and we had classroom sizes of uh, 10 and 12 at that time with two teachers in each class. Um, as the school uh, grew, we decided we wanted to expand the program. We wanted to ex extend the ages. And so we got approval to add kids up to age 10. Um, we then added another classroom and then the building was way too small and they were gonna triple our rent. And so the board made the decision to expand the program and move into um, a, a different space. Um, at that time, a year prior to that, I was asked to uh, lead the school and become the head of the school. The founders were stepping out. And so uh, that's when I came on the scene in 2003. And so I took the school into its first transition. We moved into um, 
we doubled in size over one summer, both staff, student body, and tripled the size of our building. So wow. um, we're a 12-month program. So you can imagine that we had a couple weeks in between where we literally were moving the whole school. Yeah, um, I can only imagine. Yeah, <laughs> that's I mean, another that's, podcast. That's, that's, a, that's a, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so when we moved over here at 92nd, 410 92nd, um, on the Upper East Side, um, we moved into having 90 students. Um, mm. And so 10 classrooms and 90 students. And that's when we started to really um, design more of the program that we are today, having a preschool class, having um, classes of 10 one two students. Um, and uh, now we have classes of six uh, one two. So six students, one head teacher, two associate teachers. Okay. Um, we don't have any um, what is kind of categorized and what we used to have in, in uh, 93rd when we were a state funded program is we had aides. So these were um, uh, kind of assistants that worked in the classroom to help support the students. We moved from that model into having um, associate teachers. So all of our associate teachers are in their master's program, um, desired to be special education teachers, have background mm -hmm. in education, um, mm -hmm. or have a strong background or experience in working in schools. And so it's a higher level of um, teaching support that we can offer in our in our program. And so we've constantly evolved um, over time. I recently just got approval again to move into middle school. Um, and wow, so- congrats. Thank you. Um, and so next year, um, those students, um, because we're at, in COVID and because this is such a, a, a difficult time for families, um, we've agreed to allow our students to stay um, another year after they would have aged out of our program um, okay. so that they can stay with us um, instead of trying to find another program um, at a time where you can't even go to an open house. Because as I said, environment is important. Yes. And, our family, <laughs> and our families know that. And so we want to make sure that they're not forced into making decisions that wouldn't be in the best interest of their students. Well, thank you so much for that overview, Donna. It's, it's so helpful to really, I, I really feel like even though <laughs> I couldn't physically go into Gillenbrew right now, <laughs> it's very helpful to get this, um, you know, get, get this, uh, this picture of, of what the program's like and all the work you guys have done over the years, over the decades, let alone with COVID. Um, and, and just in general, I mean, based on what you talked about with Dylan Brewers, uh, the challenges you faced over the years as an approved school and your shift to becoming non-approved. It's, it's very instructive about what challenges private special education schools face around New York and um, you know what the reasons are for, for the evolution of, of private schools. Um, so I wanted to um, begin wrapping up and, and close by asking a couple big picture questions about private special education schools in New York. Um, you know, in your mind, what overall impact has the shift in status of private special education schools from approved to non-approved and the rise of school closures had on students and families? Um, access, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. everything comes down to um, money, right? And, sure. and, um, and I think that as we have uh, had to, you know, move to a private model and have a tuition that actually, um, covers the cost of educating our students, you know, that is a huge tuition. And, um, you know, our tuition ranges from $90,000 to $130,000 a year. 
um, and that, you know, families who can afford to pay that are a select group of families who can afford to pay that, right? And so mm-hmm. um, you, you know, just by the nature of being a private school that sets a tuition at a level that, that um, you know, is in the stratosphere, what we, we call it, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's not lost on us that that is a very high tuition, but that's what it costs. All of our services are embedded in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we know that that is not attainable for all families. And so our board committed when we went into this, this model that we would serve, um, you know, at least 30% of our parent body who couldn't afford that kind of tuition that we would fundraise and we would put aside funds to support the number of families. That's about the highest percentage that I think any independent private special education school does in terms of offering that level of support. Um, It's very important for us to have a socioeconomic diverse um, student body and our board is committed to doing that. Um, But accessibility, you know, it's, it's, um, I think that over the years, and I think this plays itself out in, um, in what we talked about before is that the more privatized, the more specialized, um, the more unattainable it is yeah. Um, yeah. for families who don't have the resources, who don't have access to even know what's available to them. Um, and, you know, it, it's just last night, we were scrambling to figure out if our kids were going to get busing because the public schools closed yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this podcast will also be a timestamp in history, right? Yeah, um, we're recording this on uh, on November 19th after the Department of Education um, right. had that first school closure. Yep. Right. So, so parents were scrambling and we had to, we quick put out a survey to say who of you could not get here if busing doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. Because we had to decide we want to stay open, but if 25% of our population can't get to school, that's inequitable. And so for that reason, we would go fully remote because we don't want those families who don't have the resources to not have access to their education. And we can't provide a robust um, model for them if we're also in person. And so that has always driven um, our decision-making, which makes it really hard. But I see that, you know, I mean, we see inequity all across the board, no matter what, what category, um, we can talk about on, on the public political landscape. Um, mm-hmm. And in special education, I think that um, we're not exempt from that. And our job as, as, as special educators and, and private special educators, it's, it's not only our, um, you know, it, it, it shouldn't, it, it's not only, not only should it not be a priority for us, it's an obligation that mm-hmm. we have, um, that, that we make sure that families can find us, that we can support those families who, who need support. Um, we are, so, I am so grateful to have a group of colleagues within the special education independent school um, sector. We rely on each other. It is not a competitive group. It's not about stealing students from one school to the other. You can mm-hmm. often find that in the independent school sector. We mm-hmm. all know each other's schools. We mm-hmm. all refer students to each other's schools. We all are trying to help build each other up to be successful because we know if we don't exist, um, our families are not gonna be served. And so we're in it together. And I think that is different and exciting 
Um, but it's really super hard, Colin. It is really yeah. super hard to um, exist and sustain um, schools in this kind of a climate. Um, oh, I can only imagine. I'm, and I really appreciate all you're sharing there. I mean, those are such important considerations and challenges, you know, equity and access. We know in, in New York City or around the state and around the country. I mean, these are fundamental issues um, in, in general education, let alone in special education. Um, and, and just looking ahead, Donna, do you see um, those kind of issues of, of equity and access? Are those kind of the long-term challenges as well? Or do you have any other thoughts about the long-term outlook for private special education schools in New York? Look, I think that those of us who have the, the support to get to the other side of this, mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll pick up and then keep running. Um, I think some of those schools that, especially those state-funded schools that rely on heavy-duty fundraising, um, you know, to stay afloat. I think those are the schools most at risk right now. And I think it's really important that families who are in those schools recognize that um, because they are really gonna need a lot of your support. They need your financial yeah. support. Um, you know, there's a place for those schools and, and they're trying to hang on, um, you know, with their state funding status. And um, I applaud them. You know, I think they are true heroes um, in this landscape, but it, it's it's going to be really hard for them to come out on the other side of this if people don't um, really see the value and those families who are not paying a tuition, who otherwise would be paying a tuition, um, mm -hmm. you need to give it to them. You know, you, you, you really need, this is a time where um, those who can absolutely need to. Um, yeah. Everybody's depending on it because it's going to allow those who don't have access to get that access. Um, it, it's really important, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing this wealth of knowledge and experience with us, Donna. We're so, so grateful. Uh, in private special education schools, they embody the commitment to meaningfully educating students who can't receive a free and appropriate public education in the public schools. And how well we honor this commitment to these students is a key indicator of how we're working to provide equitable education for all students with disabilities across all types of school programs and settings. Uh, I hope everyone listening has had a deeper understanding of private special education schools and of the important function that they play, as well as a deeper sense of the stakes that these schools are facing uh, and you know how that carries over to students and families. So thank you so much, Donna. We really appreciated having you um, and giving us the overview of history, uh, what it is to be you know working as a independent private school in the time private special education school during this time of COVID. It's, it's all so fascinating. Um, so thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening. And please tune in next time for another great conversation on Disability Inc. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Colin. Thank you.